All right, the story is told of a uh, preacher who forgot his notes for the sermon he was going to deliver. In the midst of his sermon, he got a few things twisted when he said that Jesus took 4,000 barley loaves, 6,000 fishes, and fed 24 people and had plenty left over. Someone in the congregation yelled out, well, anybody could do that. The minister said, well, could you? He said, certainly I could. Well, after the service, when the minister complained about the heckler's conduct, he was told of his error by his wife. The minister said, well, next week, I won't forget my notes, and I'll fix that character. Next week, minister stepped forward, confidently began his sermon. In the course of it, he brought up again the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. He told how the five barley loaves and the two fishes had fed the multitude of approximately 24,000 people. He then pointed to the heckler from the previous Sunday and said, Could you do that? The heckler said, I sure could. He said, Well, really? How could you do that? The heckler said, I'd use the fish and bread left over from last Sunday's sermon. <laughs> and somehow or another, that story reminds me of our ongoing study of the book of 1 Timothy. And the passage that we began looking at last week, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we learn of the, once again of the importance of godly leadership. The importance of godly leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we read these words. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. As previously noted, everything rises or falls with leadership, whether it be a nation, a family, business, or local church. Therefore, it shouldn't be surprising to any of us that the Bible has much to say about the importance of godly leadership. In our passage, Paul addresses the subject of leadership as it relates to the local church. And as we will learn, church leadership is in a category of its own. The secular world places a premium on intelligence, on a charismatic personality, on glibness, diligence, vision, administrative skills, decisiveness, courage humor, tact, or any other similar natural attribute, while God, on the other hand, places a premium on integrity, on integrity. While integrity is uh, most desirable in secular leadership, its absence is fatal when it comes to spiritual leadership. John Stott writes this about that. He says, communication is by symbol as well as speech. For a man cannot only preach, he must also live. And the life that he lives with all its little peculiarities is one of two things. It either emasculates his preaching or gives it flesh and blood. It says we cannot hide what we are. 
It says, indeed, what we are speaks as plainly as what we say. When these two voices blend, the impact of the message is doubled. But when they contradict each other, even the positive witness of the one is negated by the other. It says, this was the case with the man Spurgeon describes as a good preacher, but a bad Christian. He preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought to never come out again. And when he was out of the pulpit, all declared he should never enter it again. It is at this point that a practical problem presents itself to us, and that is this. Pastors are told to be models of Christian maturity. All leadership seeks to accomplish one thing, and that's influence. Leaders seek to influence people to achieve their objectives, and influence is a direct result of teaching and example. What a man is will influence his followers to be fully committed to what he has to say. Teaching sets the nails into the mind, but example is the hammer that drives them deep. I like that. Teaching sets the nails, but example is the hammer that drives them deep. You know, no matter where we find ourselves in life, you know, each one of us, to some degree, are leaders in and of our own right. As God's people, we're salt and we're light. We're to take a leadership role in, in uh, our responsibilities in our community, in our secular world. And what we say is the nail that is set, but our example and how we live is, is the hammer that drives it deep. When the two go hand in hand, there's not much anyone can say but to go, I wonder what that person's all about. That salt that creates thirst in the, in the, in the hearts of those around us who don't know God or the things of God, but they seem so clearly lived out that they go, wow, what are you all about? Why are you the way you are? I want to know. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives insight into the call to spiritual leadership, and then he lays out the criteria that must be met to qualify for such a position. And last week we examined in verse 1 in detail what it means to be called by God to assume a position of spiritual leadership. And in verse 1 we read, it's a trustworthy statement. I've said it before, say it again. It means it's a no-brainer. You know, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. You know, if God has put on the heart of a man the desire to lead spiritually in a spiritual leadership capacity, that's a good thing. But he's saying is that when a person has that desire, that passion given to a man to do the work of spiritual oversight, it's a passion that's not for the office, it's a passion that's not for authority, it's a passion not to be in a position of power so he can tell others what to do. It is a passion to lead and serve by example, serving God by serving his people. And the example that we lay out is the example that we want people to follow. It sets the nail, but how we live it out drives it home with the hammer. See, that person who is called by God to the position of spiritual oversight is called there and is compelled to go to that position, to reach out and attain it, because anything less than that is disobedience to God. But yet at the same time, desire is not enough in and of itself. For the man must also meet the criteria that's laid out in verses 2 through 7. And it's important that we understand and recognize the importance of this criteria, because desire in and of itself is not enough. A person can desire something, but it doesn't mean that they're qualified for that position. And so there's a God-given desire or passion that God gives to men to serve him through serving his church and his people. But that person must also meet the criteria that's laid out in verses 2 through 7. 
And it's an important criteria because it's a criteria that's given by God. It's an objective standard of measurement by which all God's people can measure whether the person in leadership, whether it's a pastor, elder, remember it's an interchangeable term that's used through scripture, pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, it's interchangeable. And it gives us an objective measurement to say, does that person measure up to the standard that God has given? You know, I hear people often say, well, who are we to judge? You know what, that is nonsense. That is not biblical. God, when Jesus warned about judging, he warned about a double standard. He's saying, look, you're looking for the speck in your brother's eye and you got a big old log in your own eye. He says, remove the log from yours first so that you can more clearly see what it is that you're judging. We are to judge and hold one another accountable to the standards of God's word. It's very important because that's how false teachers entered in among the Ephesians, rose up and began to lead people astray because they weren't measuring them by the objective standard that was set out by God. So God says, hey, listen, if a person's in that position, all of us have a responsibility to measure Measure them by that objective standard that's laid out before us as an example in 1 Timothy 3, also in 2 Timothy, and also in Titus. But the first thing that we're told, this standard of measurement, is that the leader, that overseer, the pastor, the elder, must be first and foremost above reproach. It is absolutely necessary. It is a necessity. It's not an option. Notice it says an overseer then must be above reproach. The words above reproach means not able to be held. The man who's above re reproach cannot be arrested as if he were a criminal. There's nothing for which to accuse him. It's a legal term that basically means this. That while a person may be accused, when the investigation goes forth, there's no evidence in which to hold him over for trial. There's no evidence that's there to hold him over for the accusation in which has been brought before him. It would be as a prosecutor would look at it and someone would bring, a, uh, someone would bring an accusation or a complaint to the prosecution's office. And they would examine it and look at it. They would investigate. They would check into all the facts. And at the end of the day, they'd say, you know what? There's nothing here to hold this person over for trial. There's nothing here to indict them. You know what? There's no case. We're throwing it out. It's gone. It's over. See, that, that, that's what's being talked about. An elder, a pastor, must be absolutely necessary to be above reproach. And when it says it must be above reproach, the present participle be indicates he's in a present state of being above reproach. A present state of above reproach. And this is important because, you know what, none of us are righteous, no, not one. All of us are sinners. All of us have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. There's none of us who are perfect. But that's not what God is saying here. He's saying that while it's true that none of us are perfect, none of us are righteous, all of us need a Savior, all of us are on our way to hell as we come into the world condemned before God, we all need a Savior, and that's what the laws of God point out, that we are guilty as charged, and we turn to God, we fall upon His mercy, we ask for forgiveness, He gives us grace which we don't deserve, mercy He withholds which is giving us not what we do deserve, and He says, hey, you are forgiven if you trust in Christ, you're a child of God to those who believe in His name, you are now part of my family. But what's being said here is this. While none of us are perfect, there is a higher standard that must be set by those in spiritual leadership. It saddens me. It breaks my heart when I hear people in spiritual leadership lower that standard when they say things like, hey, none of us are perfect. You know what? Let's just move on. You know, when they don't want to deal with those issues that maybe are issues of disqualification. They sweep it under the rug and say, we don't want to deal with that. After all, who's perfect? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. That is not what is being said here. 
What is being said is clear that anybody in a spiritual leadership position must be above reproach. Granted, it's one thing to be accused and quite another to have grounds for such accusations. I will guarantee you that any person who is out there making an impact for the cause of Christ will be accused of certain things because the enemy wants to silence those who are being used for the kingdom of God. There is no impact if there's no collision. In the last 20-some years of ministry, I've been accused of a variety of things, and it's ongoing, it's daily. I just have learned to praise God that there is no grounds for the accusation. We hear things, but it doesn't matter if there's no grounds for it, and we praise God for that. To be above reproach means to be in a point, present tense, where though people will bring accusations against you, they are unfounded, there is no merit, there is no evidence, there is no basis of fact, and we praise God for that. But we get used to it because it comes with the territory. It's important, and in, in fact, it's mandatory that pastors be above reproach, elders be above reproach. And there are several reasons for it. First, what I just mentioned a second ago is that those who are on the front lines in spiritual battle are going to be shot at. We need to recognize and understand it's important that those who are on the front lines, those who are fighting the fight, those who are in the midst of all of it. It is spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. We're in the middle of a battle, and those who are in the middle of the battle will be assaulted more severely than those who are sitting on the bench. Why attack someone who's not in the game? And so that person who's out there in the game is going to be attacked by the enemy, the accuser, the destroyer, Satan himself. Second, their fall, leaders who fall have a greater potential for harm. Satan knows that when a shepherd falls, the effect on the sheep is devastating. Any of us who have been believers long enough and have seen people in leadership position who have fallen uh, because of sin in their life know what a devastating effect it has on the cause of Christ and the people of God. I mean, there are scars that are there for life. They don't go away. And because a person's in a leadership position, it makes it much more important than to be, to be above reproach. Third, leaders have greater knowledge of the truth and therefore have a greater accountability. You know, the Bible says in the book of James, don't seek the position of teacher because you know what? A teacher has great responsibility and accountability before God. A teacher has to give an answer to what he has taught God's people and that better be God's truth. And as long as that's the case, there is no sense of fear from the standpoint of judgment. There's a sense of fear and an awe that, you know what, I'm going to give an account myself for any time and every time that I've stood and represented God and spoke as his messenger. I'll tell you what it should do. It better keep me on my knees and it better keep me my nose in the word of God. Because when that's the case, then you can preach with authority and confidence that what you say is of God. Examine scripture. Make sure that it's true. Hold me accountable. We're to hold one another accountable. And fourth, elders' sins are more hypocritical than others because they preach against the very sins that they commit. There's nothing worse than a hypocrite. Says one thing, does another thing. Preaches one thing, lives another way. It's like, come on. Got to all line up. There's no hammer to drive the nail in if what you're living doesn't demonst isn't dem a demonstration of what you're teaching. So those are reasons why we need to be very careful and diligent to pray for those in spiritual leadership positions. To pray for them because they are a target of the enemy more so than any of us who are sitting and maybe not as actively involved as we should be using the gifts that God has given us. We need to be diligent to pray for them. 
to pray for God's protection, a hedge around them, to pray that they would be men who are godly men, who are influenced by the word of God and the word of God only. Those on the front lines of the battle are specific targets of the enemy. You know, leaders need an abundance of God's grace and power because of their responsibility and their visibility. You know, to protect themselves, the leaders must spend in-depth time in, in study of God's word. They must be, as, as uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. The psalmist said, thy word I've hid in my heart so that I don't sin against you. I mean, the reason that we study the word of God is not just to get to know God better, but to know his truth and to know what he expects of his people, to know what he has enabled us and empowered us and equipped us to do for his glory, for his service. But also we hide God's word, we meditate on his word day and night and be careful to do according to all that is written in it, Joshua 1 and Psalm 1. And the reason that we hide God's word in our heart and meditate on it is so that we don't sin against God. Leaders must have the word of God written upon their hearts so they don't sin against God. The church is called to be committed to maintaining leadership that is godly. One pastor writes this, and it's important to hear this. He says, the all too common practice today is to forgive a leader who sins and then immediately restore him to ministry. The church, like God, must never hesitate to forgive those who truly repent. To immediately restore them to ministry, however, lowers the standard that God expects leaders to follow. And since leaders serve as the pattern of holiness and virtue for the congregation, the standard for the entire church is lowered. Pastors, elders, overseers, bishops, depending on what church affiliation or denomination, must be above reproach. Now Paul gets into specifically what that means, to be above reproach. Number one, says that that pastor, elder, must be, literally it's translated, a one-woman man, and then he must be the husband of one wife. God's plan from the very beginning is clearly taught through Scripture. One woman, one man. If you question that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. One woman, one man. The answer to the problem of sexual immorality in the city of Corinth was one man, one wife, one woman, one husband. That's God's answer. It's always been that way. It hasn't changed. It's the same. Now concerning the things about which you wrote in verse 1 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities. Let each man have his own wife, singular. Let each woman, singular, have her own husband, singular. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by mutual consent or agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control." problem in Corinth was sexual immorality was rampant. As we've talked in the past, those even in religious, the, the religious functions of the day, there was a thousand prostitutes in the Acro Corinth or the, or the, or the uh, temple up, upon the highest point in the city of Corinth, and they turned religion into hypocrisy before God, using it to please themselves sexually. And what Paul answered was very simple. Because of sexual immorality, what's the answer to the problem of sexual immorality in the world? Marriage. Heterosexual marriage. Because now we've got people saying, well, if people are committed to each other, it doesn't matter what sex they are as long as they're committed. That is not God's plan. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. 
You know, that's just the way it's always been. And, and the bottom line of that is, is that this is God's answer to the problem of sexual immorality in our culture today is heterosexual marriage, period. Why are people waiting longer and longer to get married? Very simple, because they're enjoying all the benefits of marriage outside of marriage with none of the responsibilities. As it's been said long ago, why would you buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? So what God's answer is, get married and do what's right before God. God's plan of one woman, one man is clearly taught throughout Scripture, and it is clear from that, as you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, it is clear from that that monogamy has always been God's perfect plan, that polygamy, having more than one wife, more than one spouse, would, uh, would disqualify a person from spiritual oversight. That's very simple to understand. That divorce and remarriage as a believer without biblical grounds would also disqualify a man from spiritual leadership because it would nullify the standard that's set by God. And as we look at this, and also I've heard people say, well, it also talks about the, well, the person that's a pastor or elder must be married. It doesn't say that. It says that he must be a one-woman man or the husband of one wife, meaning that if a person is married, there is a qualification that exists as to whether he qualifies for spiritual leadership. And in fact, the argument's very simple. Paul, as he wrote this, was a single man. And as he wrote to the Corinthians, that he was a single man at the time. History tells us that he's probably a widower because he could have never been on the Sanhedrin if he hadn't been married. So he was probably married at one time. Now he was single. And he says, hey, it's good to be single as I am at this point in my life. So you're not distracted by family responsibilities and you can devote 100% of your time to serving God. That's a good thing. But if you don't have the gift of celibacy and if you can't control your sexual desires and you're trying to meet them outside of marriage, then get married and be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. And that means very simply this. A one-woman man is a man who is devoted in his heart and his mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves her, he desires her, he thinks only of her. He maintains sexual purity in both his thought life and his conduct. And that qualification is especially important today in our world as it was in the world in which Paul wrote this because in Ephesus, you know what, sexual immorality was rampant and church leaders used that as a platform to be able to meet their needs in ways that are not pleasing to God. He's saying, hey, be committed to your, to your wife. If you're in a spiritual leadership position, be committed to your wife. And it relates, as we'll see in a moment, to a man's ability to manage his own household, which is another qualification. A pastor or elder must also be temperate. <clears throat> the word temperate means well-balanced, mentally sober, so to speak, mental sobriety. He's, it's a freedom from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. It describes a person who is stable, self-restrained, clear-headed. You know, their decisions aren't based upon, you know, you know, kind of testing the wind as politicians do. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to make a decision today. I'm going to stick my finger in the wind and see how it goes. If it doesn't go over well, then wait a minute, I changed my mind. I'll go this way. It's kind of like, have you ever seen politicians? It's like, you know, that's the leadership of the world where, what's the polls say? Well, I want to do this. I think we should do this. Oh, you know what? If you do that, you're going to have a problem. We're not going to get people elected in the next election. It's not a popular decision. Oh, okay, then I'm going to do this. I'll go over this way then. What's it say over here? Oh, nice safe middle ground. I think I'll just stay right here and do nothing. See, you know, that's not godly leadership. Godly leadership is based upon the word of God. And you know what? Whatever the consequence is on, if it's based on God's word, then that's where the chips are going to fall as they are. You know, you do your best to explain that truth to people, but at the same time, you're not too, much, you're not too worried about the fallout because you know you're standing upon the solid foundation of God's word. 
A temperate person is a person who's stable and, 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 you know, they investigate the facts. Like I was talking about, can you imagine having a person in a prosecutor's office who's not stable in his ways, doesn't investigate things, hurries up and bring charges against a person, and then has them just totally shot down and torn apart in, in the court of law? How embarrassing would that be? No prosecutor brings a case before any judge or jury without being convinced that they're right and that that person is guilty. Period. If it's no, you can't convict, you know what, there's not enough evidence, don't even bring it up. And what he's saying is that's a tempered person. Spiritual leadership, a person who is tempered says, you know what, I'm going to investigate the facts. I'm going to check into things. I'm going to look at all this from every angle that's there. And then at the end of the day, we'll make a decision, but not until then. And it has to do with being prudent. And prudent means having good, common, godly sense. And the question of a prudent person is very simple. It's this. Does this action, does this decision make spiritual sense? Is what we're about to do, does it make spiritual sense? As I go to scripture, is it there? Is it supported by God? Is there a foundation that's there? You know, is it just something I want to do and it makes no sense at all? And most of the time when people do things like that in leadership position, people scratch their head and go, that doesn't make any sense. See, there's a certain point where people that are in the word of God go, that makes sense or it doesn't make sense. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. Help me understand. Explain it to me. It doesn't make sense. See, that pastor, elder, to be qualified must be a person above reproach in the areas of his marriage. Hey, you know what? He loves his wife. There's no grounds that could be brought. There's no accusations that could be made. There's nothing there that's an appearance of evil in his relationship with other women. He's temperate. Uh, you know, he's well-balanced. Uh, you know, he's not rash in coming to conclusions because he's got to be emotionally stable to make decisions based on a variety of things that are going on. He's, he's prudent in that. Hey, wait a minute. If it doesn't make common sense, it may not be the thing to do. And it protects themselves from authoritarianism. There's a certain point when you're getting a position of leadership, responsibility, authority, you can start to tell people what you want them to do and lose a sense of, wait a minute, but this, is this really gracious or not? Is this really loving or not? Is this really of God or not? And we've got to be very careful that we're not guilty in our own lives, but especially in the area of leadership. The word respectable, I like that. It just means basically what it says. Hey, you know what? You're not going to follow somebody who you don't respect. I don't respect that person. Well, why not? Well, maybe it's for some of the reasons that we're going to look at. Maybe it's like, hey, because maybe that person, you know, isn't committed to his wife. And it bothers me the way he treats her, the things that I see him say and do. It bothers me, you know, that, you know, they, that one day it's this thing and the next day it's something else. And, and, and all of a sudden you don't know where they stand or where they're going or where they're headed. And, you know, and what they do doesn't make any biblical, spiritual, common sense. You know, you go, well, the whole idea of re being respectable is that, you know, you, you respect that person and that, you know what, I'll follow that person. I respect them. Their life and how they live it, the things that they say and how they live all go hand in hand. It all meshes. I have respect for that person. If they are wrong, they admit that they're wrong. Hey, you know, my bad, my fault. I was, I was stupid. I, I shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have said that. I asked for your forgiveness. And you go, you know what, I can respect that person. You know, we all make mistakes. But taking accountability and responsibility is one thing. Passing them off and blaming other people is something else. I will always respect someone who says, I made a mistake. That's my fault. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Well, absolutely. All right, now let's move forward together. I have a problem respecting people who don't take responsibility. Oh, that's not what happened. That's not what you think happened. That's not what I said. That, that, that. You know, it was like the old Clinton days of, you know, well, it depends on how you define is. What? 
I have no respect for a person that talks out of both sides of their mouth. And that's what we'll see is important in spiritual leadership. You know, it's like, I know what he said, I have a problem with what he said, but I respect him because at least I know what he said. And if it's based upon the word of God, then you know what, then we all better respect and accept what was said. The criteria continues in that a spiritual oversight position, pastor, elder, bishop, whatever is more common to you, literally means, hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. Hospitality is frequently commanded in the Bible. And it doesn't refer to entertaining your friends. You know, Jesus said, hey, you have a banquet, you know, you have people over, and they have you over, and then you have them over, and now we owe you a dinner, we owe you a night out. That, that's not hospitality. Hospitality literally means I love to, to be a lover of strangers. Someone comes into your midst, and they make you feel like you're welcome. You know, there's a guest that comes to a church, and they feel like, wow, people welcomed me here. A pastor, an elder, a leader has to be someone who makes people feel welcome to come into their household, for this is the household of God. As Paul tells Timothy, hey, I'm going to teach you how to be a good manager of God's household. To be able to welcome them in. We are to express hospitality. Every believer is to express hospitality to others. Every believer, the Bible says that some believers have entertained angels without even knowing it. They're we're to be hospitable to one another. Our home, after we had come to faith in Christ, has always been a place where people could come and stay and hopefully feel welcome and hopefully more so than that to see the love of God dwelling within our family and in our marriage so that they sit there and go, wow, wait a minute. You want to really get to know what people are like? Live with them for a while. We have opened our home many times. I mean, there's some funny stories that comes out letting, you know, letting people live with you that you don't know. Funniest story that I've ever, ever been able to share with regards to hospitality. In fact, people that know us call our house the, the inn on the hill. And that, you know, we're looking to rezone. But, but our neighbors are against it. But I'm sitting watching TV one day, and the phone rings. And Linda and I, our families, are good friends with Jeff and Stacy Kemp and their family who played for the Rams when we were doing their Bible study, were traded and moved to San Francisco. We'd only been there one time. We went up to visit him, and Jeff was rooming uh, during summer camp with a guy who was named Mike Morosky, who was a backup quarterback, went to Cal Davis, and uh, anyway, was there as his backup. And so that's the only time. I met him one time, probably in a five-minute conversation. The phone rings, and it's Mike. Hey, Chuck, it's Mike Morosky. Remember, I used to be Jeff Kemp's uh, roommate, you know, up in, with the 49ers. I said, yeah, Mike, I remember you. He goes, well, I just want to let you know that a friend of mine who I went to school with, has just got a position as the head tennis coach at Chapman College at that time, now it's Chapman University. And I told him if he needs anything to give you a call and that he can go ahead, you know, and, and you'd help him out whatever way they can. I said, man, that's great. Hung up the phone. Not even four minutes later, the, the doorbell rang. And I'm in this awkward position of being in my chair watching a sporting event. It's kind of like when the phone rings. And it could be right here, but it's like, hey, can someone get that? Hey, oh, and, the, and doorbell's ringing, ringing, and it's like, no one, hey, doorbell's ringing. No, everybody knows it, but that's my way of saying, can you get it? Because I don't really feel like it. But uh, <laughs> no one moved toward the door. So I go, I answer the door, and there's a young guy standing there, and he's got a suitcase in each hand. <laughs> he puts his suitcases down, and he says, you know, this is absolutely the most incredible thing. This is such a blessing of God. That you would take me in and not know anything about me. 
well, God's already blessed it, so I guess it's been preordained. So, meanwhile, Linda, she comes to the landing, the second floor, looks down. I look down at her. She sees the suitcases. Ryan already knows the drill by this time. He's packing up his stuff, moving out of his bedroom, going down to the extra room. Like, here we go. And sure enough, you know, he ended up moving in, lived with us for six months, got settled, ultimately married a gal in this area, coaches tennis at UC Irvine, got to do his wedding after that and just one thing after another. But those are the kind of things that happen when you open your heart, you know, and show hospitality to strangers. They move in and stay with you for six months. So... You know, after that, the, the, those exchange student things were a breeze. A week? <laughs> Bring them all in. We'll take 27 of them. Bring them all. A week? Hey, that's nothing compared to what we've been going through. But hospitality. Pastors and elders must never be elevated to a place where they're unapproachable by strangers. They're always available. They're always open. Their hearts are always welcoming. You know, th th there's something wrong with a pastor or, or elder who, who looks like he's been baptized man in vinegar. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like, I mean, it's just not a very attractive thing. It's like, it's the elders walking around. I'm an elder, big burden. It's like, you know, hey, wait, wait. If God's giving you desire, man, have a little joy in the Lord. It's okay. You know, praise God. An elder must be hospitable. Now, interesting, an elder also must be able to teach. You know, and this is the only qualification that relates specifically to giftedness and function. A pastor elder must be a highly skilled teacher who works hard in his studies and proclamation of the word of God. We'll see more of that in 1 Timothy 5. But think about it. Since the primary duty of an overseer, pastor teacher, is to preach and teach the word of God, being gifted for that is not an option but a qualifying necessity. Think about it. The reason that pastors, teachers were given to the local church as a gift to the church is to teach the word of God. That's their primary calling. It would be like if you owned a business hiring a salesperson who came to work for you who didn't want to sell but they wanted to do your accounting. What? That doesn't make any sense. I hired you because you sell. That's your job. That's your primary responsibility. Go sell. I got somebody else who can do accounting. See, in the church, God gifts the church, his church, with pastors, teachers who are gifted to preach and teach the word of God. That's their primary calling. And any pastor or teacher who doesn't teach shouldn't be in that position. That's as simple as it gets. They have to be able to teach. Every one of us are responsible to pass along truths that we learn from God's word, but not everyone is gifted for preaching and teaching the word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Some are a hand, some are a foot, some are an eye, some are this, that, the other thing. We're all gifted differently, but the reality of it is those who aspire that outward act of wanting to be a pastor teacher, anyone who goes into seminary to be a pastor teacher must evaluate first and foremost, am I? I gifted to teach the word of God. And if I'm not, I'm going to save myself a lot of misery and, and anguish and aggravation by pursuing a career path that is not meant for me. I'll go somewhere else and serve the Lord whom I love and whom he has gifted me to do other things. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just recognizing that gift. Apt to teach, able to teach. Every person who is a pastor, elder, must be able to teach. And the reason is simple. Because every decision that is made in God's household is decided upon the word of God. 
So you better know what it says in order to give direction and leadership. If you don't know, then you could be led astray by those who say they know, and you don't know, you can't test it or, or discern whether or not that's true or not. And then it's like, wait a minute. It negates the whole purpose of a plurality of elders if not everyone is there is gifted to be able to study, search, and teach, and preach the Word of God. We're holding each other accountable by God's standards. Now, it's interesting because today there's, you know, there would be an interesting discussion if we would say, okay, what makes for a skilled teacher? You know, and everyone has their opinion. But God's Word gives us some definition. A skilled teacher must have the gift of teaching. First and foremost, you've got to be able to have the gift. Timothy had that gift, 1 Timothy 4.14. A skilled teacher must have a deep understanding of scriptural doctrine or truth. You know, that wealth of knowledge that says, I understand doctrine, I understand spiritual truth. I can share it then with you and make application for you in what you struggle with. First thing when people come to me and say, hey, I'm having a problem in this area. The first thing that God does is he reminds me of passages that clearly answer where they are in their life and what they need to do. The word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Here's where you are. Here's where you need to go. These are the passages. Study them. Search them yourself. Pray about it. Read it. We'll discuss it. But you should never, no one should ever go to a counselor who doesn't have the Word of God on their desk, and when you ask a question, isn't thumbing through the pages looking for answers and saying, hey, you know what, wait a minute, here's something that we need to look at. It pertains to your situation. Let's pray about it together. Let's study it together. Let's search the Scripture together. And now let's go out and apply it. Come back and tell me something. If a person doesn't open in prayer, doesn't have their Bible, doesn't close in prayer, then don't go there. Run and seek out godly counsel. A skilled teacher is marked by a life of holiness as an example. Ezra said he was committed to studying the Word of God, to living the Word of God, and then to teach the Word of God. You cannot teach that which you haven't lived. You just can't. You can try. You can run to the books. You can go to illustrations of how to try to teach it. But you know what? People sitting there go, you know what? That person just doesn't get it. Why? Because they haven't lived it. They haven't been exposed to it. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have a frame of reference. And you know what? Ezra was, he was a man who was dedicated to study God's word, to go out and live it, and then he could teach God's truth in that order. A skilled teacher must be one who avoids error. That's got to be very careful about exposing himself to truth and then also exposing those he teaches to God's truth to make sure everything lines up with the word of God. And a skilled teacher has to have strong courage and convictions that are based upon God's word. Paul said, I fought the fight. You know, I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've stuck to the word of God. And God's never led me astray. Dr. Daniel Block, speaking to a group that was at a seminary chapel. These words were recorded. Young men preparing for ministry, or some of you already engaged in it. May I caution you about several things. First, please don't look upon your own qualifications for ministry primarily on the basis of pedigree or talent or even ability to hold an audience. Have you noticed how, he goes, have you noticed how we define good preaching these days? It's anybody who can keep the audience awake for 20 minutes. But nothing is more deadly for a church than a pastor impressed with his own gifts, impressed with his own education, impressed with his own accomplishments, or even his own charisma. said, nothing is more important than our commitment to the scriptures. This means that when we preach, our people can tell that we have actually spent time in the word of God. 
He said, it's curious the response I received in Kansas City after several of my sermons. People would come up to me and say, boy, it's obvious that you've studied. We ought not to even take that as a compliment. It's a sad commentary because we have reduced our instruction in the church to Reader's Digest medicine. We wouldn't go to a doctor who learned his medicine from the articles on medicine and drugs in Reader's Digest, and yet that's the level at which we are operating today in the church. It says, we have so many preachers who obviously spend more time in movie theaters, more time in front of televisions than they do with wrestling with the text of Scripture because this is what they're talking about. We have far too many preachers who spend more time trying to find creative ways to say things than finding divinely ordained things to say. We have far too many preachers who preach topical sermons, current issue sermons, personal problem sermons, feel-good sermons, entertaining sermons, whose relevance is ephemeral instead of proclaiming the eternal truths of God's word. And to that I say, amen. But I would say it sooner than that. (laughs) A church leader, a pastor, a teacher, or elder must be able to teach the word of God because everything in God's household runs according to God's word. He must not be addicted to wine. You know, some of these things you go, well, that kind of goes without saying. That would be kind of a a silly thing to put a person who is addicted to wine that actually has nothing to do with this case in drunkenness as much as it does with a person who has a reputation as a drinker. He doesn't, frequent bar, he doesn't frequent bars, involve himself in the scenes associated with drinking. That person is above reproach in this particular area. And it's important to understand why. Because, you know what, perversion of justice occurs for those who are not sober in their thought life. Anybody who's ever drank, anybody who's ever got drunk realizes that things deteriorate very quick when a person is prone to drink. And the reason for it is, is that, you know what, then there's sexual immorality that is a result of it. There's, there's a, a perversion of justice that takes place in people's minds that cannot clearly think. Uh, all of these things, you know, pugnacious uh, argument, con- contentious, all of it takes place. If you've ever been somewhere where people are drinking, you've seen it. Where people get drunk, man, stupid things start to happen. Who has woes and troubles? I'll tell you who has woes and troubles. Those who stare too long at a drink, meaning that those who spend way too much time drinking. Nothing good has ever come out of drinking alcoholic beverages. That's as simple and plain as it gets. And therefore, certainly no leader should be in that position. A leader should not be pugnacious. The word pugnacious means quick to, quick to go at it. Quick to kind of start a fight. Spurgeon said this, he told his pastor's college students, don't go about the world with your fist doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. I like that. Yeah, you think that? Well, listen, John 3.16 says this. You know, that's not the kind of leadership that you want, you know. Church leaders, you know, church leaders should never have the idea that's kind of like that idea of, hey, you looking at me? We'll go outside, we'll settle this right now. You know, and what's funny is, is that, you know, when we're going through the book of Acts, you know, there were some very contentious arguments that took place. One of them was over John Mark. If you remember the argument that Paul and Barnabas had over Mark, the Bible says, man, they almost broke out into a fist fight. Well, you know what? God's word, this written after that incident, I'm sure as they look back on that went, ooh, man, that wasn't a good, that wasn't a good thing that we did. I mean, they almost went to blows. I'm taking them. You're not taking them. I'm going to take them. I'll kick your rear end. I'm taking them. And, it's, and those are the words that were used. It was like, man, they were going at it. I've seen and heard of some of those kind of meetings taking place. And the reality of it is, wait a minute, but God's people aren't to be pugnacious. 
They're not to be pugnacious, but they're to be gentle. You know, to be gentle. You know, it describes the person who's considerate, forbearing, gracious, who responds easily uh, and, and gently to what's going on around them. 1 Corinthians 13, you know, a leader should be motivated by love. You know, God's people, we should all be motivated by love. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't act unbecoming. Anyone in a spiritual leadership shouldn't act that way. They should be gentle as we approach to want to discuss things. They should be gentle, not contentious, not all immediately becoming defensive of their position and wanting to jam it down your throat, but listen to what you have to say for the purpose of, of making a sound biblical decision. Also goes through with, it has the idea of uncontentious, which ties together with what we just talked about. You know, contentions or arguments are like bars in a castle. The Bible tells us they cause barriers not, and divisiveness, not harmony and unity. I mean, there should be no, no one in a spiritual leadership position who's a person who creates contention or things of that nature. You know, the Bible says that uh, also that the leader shouldn't be greedy. We'll go in great detail on this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but this was one very specific way to be able to judge whether or not a person was a false teacher. Because a person who is motivated by money set themselves apart from God's leaders who are motivated by love of God and service of his people. It was never an issue, how much am I being paid? It's never an issue of what the motivation is. I get people calling and say, hey, would you speak at our retreat? Would you speak at this, that, or the other thing? How much do you charge? I've never charged anything. I've never set a fee. Now, it's different because I don't do this for a livelihood for my family, so I've never felt comfortable setting a fee. Hey, you know what? That wouldn't be the reason I'd come to speak to your group for a fee. You know, whatever, it doesn't matter to me. That's not why I would say yes or no. I wouldn't say yes if it was more money and no if it was less money. It has nothing to do with that. See, the person who is a lover of money, as we'll see, because of the love for money, many have wandered from the truth. They stopped teaching God's truth because there was something personally in it in their pocket. You know, I deal with people oftentimes in parachurch organizations, and the church is also subject to this, where we may say something from the Word of God, teach God's truth, and it will offend an individual who is guilty of sin before God. But we've got to be very careful because we don't want to offend anybody who's one of the large givers or contributors to the church, a very important person in the, in the congregation and in our community. God says, don't be a respecter of people like the world is. You teach God's truth. And if they're convicted of sin and they turn from sin, you've, you've saved a brother. If they leave because they don't like what you say, then let them go somewhere else. But you be committed to teaching the word of God. God is not limited in meeting the needs of his church. He is not limited in resources to individuals. You know where it says, you know, 80% of the people, you know, do this or that or 20%, give 80%. You know, who cares? Anybody in leadership position should never even be looking at who's giving what kind of money. They should have somebody separate to do that so that there's never an influence as far as anybody is concerned whether they will teach and preach the word of God. Be committed to God's truth. God is not limited in meeting the needs of his people. We don't have to compromise in order to do so to those who are living in sin. You know, I see parachurches where, especially in the ministry we're involved in, in professional sports, where it's like if you're trying to teach somebody spiritual truth and they're giving you money and you know they're guilty of sin, you may have a tendency to avoid that particular subject. Praise God, I've never been in a position where I've had to worry about that because God has taken care of our livelihood in other ways. But when people come, if that's the passage, that's what they hear. Man, we've had people sitting in our home where sweat is poured from their heads. You know, we've had to get rid of furniture, you know, because we just couldn't get it cleaned up. 
And all because we knew that what that person, that's, that person was sitting there just being convicted and pounded by the truth of God's word. But you know what? Those are people that we still have a relationship today that look back in those times and say, I praise God for you, that you are a man who did not compromise the truth of God's word because you saved me from the destruction that would have lied ahead if I continued to live in opposition to the things of God. So, not greedy. Manage as well. This has to do with the idea of managing your household well. Managing it well, his own household. Point is, a pastor can't be one thing at home and something else at church. You know, because I, what I've already said, you know, unbelievers, unbelievers can spot hypocrisy, you know, a mile away. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how is he going to manage the household of God? That's as simple as you can get. He goes on to say he must also be spiritually mature. Spiritually mature, meaning that he's not a novice, he's not a new believer, he's not, as I would say, a spiritual rookie. He is a person, or the word actually means not one newly planted. He is one who has been seasoned in his walk with the Lord. He knows the word of God. He's apt to teach. It's been demonstrated over a period of time. The person has the gift of teaching. It's demonstrated over a period of time. The person's not greedy. He manages his household well. You know, you go down through all of it, that he's above reproach, that he loves his wife, that it's demonstrated in his relationship. He's temperate. He's prudent. He's respectable. People respect him. He's hospitable. He opens up his home to strangers. I mean, he's able to teach. He's not addicted the wine, he's not pugnacious, he's gentle, he's not contentious, hey, he's, you know, it, it, it has to be demonstrated over a period of time. A new believer, a person new to a church and new to people, you know, nobody has any idea whether that's true of their life or not. They have to demonstrate it over a period of time. And the last thing that he says is that a person must have a good reputation with unbelievers. A good reputation with unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? That God is concerned that his leaders, pastors, teachers, elders, overseers, bishops, whatever, that they have a good reputation with the unbelieving world. Does he pay his bills on time? Does he do what he says he's going to do when he says he's going to do it? You know, they may not agree with our theology, but they can't argue with our life. They might not agree with our God or the road to salvation, that it's as narrow as we claim through Christ and him alone but they cannot argue with the way we conduct ourselves. Does that person have a good reputation with unbelievers? Because if a person doesn't have a good reputation with unbelievers, let me tell you what had kept me from Christ for a number of years. You know what kept me from seeing Jesus Christ for who he truly is? Christians. Christians. People who claimed to be born again, claimed to have come to faith in Christ, claimed to have had their sins forgiven, and yet live like hell like I was living. There's nothing attractive about a person who is hip hypocritical in their walk with Christ. Christians. And yet at the same time, it, 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 we are supposed to be that salt and light that I mentioned when we started all this. That attracts people to our Savior. Why are you the way you are? Because Christ lives within me. What does that mean? Let me tell you. Praise God for that. That sets the nails and the hammer that drives it in. A good reputation with unbelievers. Spiritual leadership begins with a God-given call or desire to serve, and it's validated by meeting the criteria as outlined in God's Word. It's not what we think a spiritual leader should be. 
Who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? Oh, I know that's very offensive in our politically correct day where everybody's opinion means so much, but who cares? The only thing that matters is what does God say? And then we hold him to that standard and hold him accountable to that because that's all that's important at the end of the day. He's God, we're not. His standard is set. It doesn't matter whether a person meets 60%, 70%, 90%, even 98%. If they don't meet 100% of these standards, they should not be in a spiritual leadership position. And if it means only one person, two, three, four in a church meet that position, meet those qualifications, those God-given desires, then guess what? Then I guess that's as many people that will be on the board of elders. You know, it's never a set amount and then you find people to jam in there. It's, you know what, it's however many God raises up in a congregation that have that desire that God gives and then meet the qualifications, then that's as many as there'll be. There's always a plurality, but at the same time, there's nothing in the Word of God that says how many that should be. See, leadership, it's critical that we understand the importance of godly leadership. Because leaders face temptations, and the temptation they face most is the temptation to discouragement. They set a standard, and they even sometimes they themselves fail and don't meet that standard. Second, leaders are tempted to indifference. That temptation is kind of an outgrowth of the first one, and that has to do with some leaders respond to discouragement by dissing themselves uh, from people who, who could uh, wound up, wind them up with disappointments. It's like, you know, we set up, we set the standard, you don't meet it, oh, we're disappointed, and you, know, and you kind of get critical and cynical towards people. Third, leaders face the temptation of what might be termed what I would call busy laziness. And that means this, that they take the path of least resistance and do what they want to do, not what they have to do or should do or need to do according to the word of God. They appear to be busy, but they're not doing anything that has to do with any redemptive value for eternal things. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that in our own lives. Examine your own life. We're all busy. How many people are busy? Busy. A lot of stuff going on. Now I'm going to ask you a question that I ask myself on a regular basis. But how many of those things that I do have an eternal value, an eternal consequence or significance. We are all busy, but what are we busy doing? A pastor, an elder could be busy. Many of them are busy putting out the fires that they started and then say they're busy. They had a busy week. Well, what are you busy doing? Well, I, I said this, did that, and shouldn't have done that, and, you know, and this is the message created, and now I'm spending the rest of my time trying to undo what I did. Hey, but there's nothing redemptive as far as God's kingdom is concerned. I mean, what makes, I mean, think about it. We're all busy, but you know what? The only things that matter at the end of the day, there's only two things that last forever, the word of God and the souls of people. And if in our busyness to do things in life, we're not sharing the gospel with the lost, if in our busyness to do the things of life that we do, we are not discipling those who have come to faith in Christ, building them up in their faith so that they could be reproducing themselves. But let me tell you something. We are not doing anything of any significant consequence for the eternal kingdom of God. We're busy, all right, but we're not busy doing what God has called us to do. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who was lost? When was the last time you discipled a new believer mentored them, build them up in their faith. We need to do that on a regular basis. That has to be our life. Go into the world and make disciples. Are you making disciples? Are you reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because there's no other way that they will be saved from the consequences and condemnation of their sins and ultimate judgment of God in hell. We're busy, but we're not, doing, we're not busy doing what God's called us to do. 
See, spiritual leaders are the ones who are supposed to be keeping us on track to make sure that we don't get off track, busy in other areas of life. And many times, those same leaders are busy doing those things that have no spiritual significance themselves. Who's going to keep us on the straight and narrow? See, the standard of God is a high standard. It's an example to follow. The qualifications are laid out. It's so important because of that, that we are people who are committed to pray for those who are in spiritual oversight, to pray for pastors and teachers, to pray for those who are on the elder board, to make it a priority to pray for them, specifically to pray this, that every person in that position is there because God has called them and given them a passion and desire to do that. That's one thing we always have to pray. And second is, once that's answered, and we can't answer that, that's only something that they can answer themselves. Are you called by God? Do you have a passion to serve God and his people in this manner? To do the work, not to have the position, but to do the work. And if so, we must pray that God would put a hedge and protection around them. Because those who are out there making a difference for the kingdom of God or got a big old target on their foreheads by the enemy himself, the accuser, the, the, the deceiver, the destroyer, the enemy, and all of his demons are working hard and overtime to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We need to pray for those in leadership as those who will give an account to God for how they ruled. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. And our prayer today is to pray for those pastors and elders here at Calvary Church. To pray for all those pastors, to pray for Pastor Dave, to pray for every pastor that's on staff. To pray for every man who has assumed and aspired in a position of an elder. That they would be men who are called first and foremost by you, not coerced or there because of somebody else's uh, calling for their life, but because you've put that desire in their own heart. That we would pray for them. That you would put a hedge of protection around them as they make decisions, that they're decisions that are based and founded upon the Word of God, that there are men who meet the qualifications that are laid out clearly in Scripture, that we don't become guilty as the world does of, of lowering that standard because, after all, who are we? None of us are perfect. Therefore, why should the standard be set so high? But see, God, it's not our standard. It's yours that we must live up to. And so, God, I pray for them. We pray for them collectively, for each one in that position, that they would be godly men, who would have nothing more than the will of God, foremost in their hearts and in their minds and in their thoughts and in their decision-making process, so that at the end of the day, as they give an account for the actions and decisions that they made, they are decisions that are founded upon your word. God, we are to submit and to obey our leaders as those who give an answer for their rule, their administration over us. God, help us to hold one another accountable to the truth of your word, not blindly following any man, but holding them accountable to the standards that are set up, examining the scriptures daily to see whether the things that are taught, to see whether the actions that are taken are truly of God. And we will know it because you'll be in it. There'll be unity. There'll be harmony. Uh, there'll, there'll be a, a peace that comes with you in the midst of every godly decision that's ever made. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.